The first performance of Tosca on January the 14th at Rome's Teatro Constanzi almost didn't happen. Fifteen minutes before the opera was about to begin, a policeman told the conductor, Mugnoni, that it was possible that a bomb might be thrown during the performance. If this happened, then Mugnoni was to strike up the national anthem. The audience that night was particularly glittering, with indeed royalty present. So, Munioni entered the pit and the opera began. But within a few bars, there was shouting in the theatre and a single voice shouted, down with the curtain. Mistaking this for a terrorist attack, the conductor fled backstage, where he discovered that the shouting was not the work of political radicals, but of latecomers who were determined not to miss a note of Puccini's new opera. We may smile, but it's a reminder that this opera can be read as a political piece of music theatre, as well as a classical Italian opera with a heroic tenor, a suffering soprano, and an evil baritone. So much for the critic Joseph Kerman's sniping remark that Tosca is a shabby little shocker. It's much more, and indeed Puccini must have sensed this when he first encountered the play by the French writer Victorien Sadou. Even if Sarah Bernhardt, for whom the play was written, was disappointing when Puccini saw her in Florence, he must have realised at once it was a story with huge potential. But before he could get down to work on the music, Puccini required his librettist to pare down the play. As always, writing the libretto to the composer's specifications was a long, tough and hard road for Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giacosa. Giacosa was summoned late in the day to polish the versification. These were the two men, among one other, who had suffered as Puccini wrote his first international hit before Tosca, La Boheme. Indeed, it would take three years before Tosca was completed to the composer's satisfaction. And even then, his publisher Ricordi suggested to Puccini that he got Act 3 completely wrong. We, I think, would beg to differ. Act one belongs to all three principles, with Cavradossi, the painter, helping the former consul of the short-lived Roman Republic who has escaped from the prison Castel Sant'Angelo, and then fending off Tosca's jealousy before Scarpia sings of his desire to possess the singer during a Te Deum intended to celebrate Bonaparte's imagined defeat at the Battle of Marengo. This is 1800, all in one day. Act two, which contains Tosca's Visi Date, surely one of the most affecting arias the composer ever wrote, belongs to the singer and to her oppressor Scarpia, head of the Roman police. But act three, well, that belongs to the lovers, with another show-stopping aria, Cavradosis, e Luce van Lestelle, and then comes the end, but no spoilers, I promise. We're joined by a quartet of guests tonight to talk about this revival of Catherine Malfitano's production of Tosca from 2010. Jeff Summerton is technical director here at English National Opera, Stephen Gadd, who covers the role of Scarpe in this revival, and Andrew Smith, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff, are going to perform music from the opera. But our first guest is the musicologist Dr. Flora Wilson, who teaches at King's College here in the University of London. Will you please welcome Flora Wilson? Thank you very much. Do we have any ideas uh, why uh, Puccini should have been so attracted to Sardou's play? Well, I think the thing we need to remember... Oh, you can hear me. Good. Um, ..is that Sardou's play had already been a huge hit 
uh, in French-speaking lands, and also to a certain extent in Italy, although it had gained a certain amount of notoriety on the basis of its sensationalism. Um, but there was no question that it was an extremely current play, and so that will have attracted Puccini's attention in the first place. The other thing is that, as any one of, of you who uh, knows Puccini's other operas will have gathered, he loved a good female heroine, and there is no heroine like Tosca. And as played by Sarah Bernhardt, um, Tosca really was an extraordinarily powerful character. And I think that really spoke to Puccini. The good thing, having just said all this to you, is that we actually know what Puccini thought about Tosca, the Sardou play. Um, the play was proposed to him by the librettist he'd worked with already on his first two operas, uh, Les Villi and Edgar. Um, and he wrote to Ricordi, his publisher, and said, in this Tosca, I see the opera I need, one whose proportions are not excessive, either a spectacle or as something giving rise to the usual superabundance of music. And that sounds rather odd, I imagine, but I think what he was getting at was that he wanted an efficient drama. He wanted something he could animate that didn't need some sort of old-fashioned, grand operatic treatment, that instead was a sort of a modern subject that could take modern treatment. He seems to have had a moment of cold feet after seeing Bernhard in the play, I think in Florence. Yes, this is a peculiar little twist in what is a very, very twisted story to get from Puccini first liking the idea to quite a lot of years later, the opera actually having its premiere in Rome. Um, Puccini saw Bernhardt three times in total. The third time was the time that you've mentioned, Christopher, in Florence, when he actually really didn't, wasn't terribly impressed. Bernhardt wasn't feeling very well that day. But also by that point, Puccini was at work on his own opera. He'd got his own take. And he basically felt that Sardou's play and Bernhardt's take on Tosca sort of wasn't quite what he had in mind by that point. He had, though, seen her twice previously in 1889, shortly after he first had had the subject proposed to him. And at that point, he was extremely moved. The performances were both in French, mm. one in Milan, one, one in Turin. Puccini didn't speak French, um, but he didn't let that get in his way. Um, and I think that tells us something about Bernhardt's sort of dramatic prowess as well, that Puccini was essentially moved, and that was what mattered. It was, it was Bernhardt's sort of guttural cries, her, her real impersonation of the character that got to him. A play is, of course, a play, and a libretto for an opera is a very different kettle of fish to mix metaphors. Um, what did he ask his librettists to pare down from the original uh, play? What did he want from them? Well, he wanted the characters stripped down for a start. He really focused it um, on that trio that you've already mentioned. The play has something like 23 characters in, I think. The opera has a total of about nine, and that's including sort of everyone and their dog, um, except the chorus. Um, and so um, it's, it was really a case of streamlining. Um, and it was also a case of streamlining the locations. So for Puccini, it was the atmosphere of a particular location um, that again and again in his operas, you see that being important to him. Think of Butterfly and its sort of Orientalism in music. Um, and uh, think of La Boheme and its sort of evocation of Paris. But perhaps none is as obvious as Tosca. And his interest in the sort of the Roman soundscape 
you like. He actually went to Rome. He did location research, as we'd call it now. He went to Rome. He went and listened from the battlements of the Castel Sant'Angelo um, to hear what the bells sounded like from there. He wanted to reproduce that sound in his own opera. And so what he got his librettists to do was to strip down the structure of the libretto to these three acts in three different locations, each within the city and each with their own sort of sonic imprints, if you like. And each following the other in terms of time. So it's basically from an early morning to a dawn. Exactly. I mean, it is, in that sense, it follows Sardou's play, which basically is a sort of 24-hour period. I think Sardou actually specified which day in 1800 it was supposed to be. I don't think that was of great interest to Puccini, all told. He was much more interested in getting at some sort of atmospheric specificity instead. What is it that Ricordi disliked about the third act? Do we know? Ricordi, this is one of the very few times when the publisher and the composer really disagreed about something that Puccini had done. Puccini was really pleased with himself by this point. He'd, he'd written his next opera. He had high hopes for it. He felt it was really, it had come together well. Ricordi thought the final act was fragmentary. What he wanted was a big lyrical love duet. And what he found was this act that sort of, as far as he could see, rambled along, never quite sort of settled. It was the work of some sort of juvenile, non-expert, as far as he was concerned. And he thought that really what was needed was something transcendent, as he said. And Puccini's answer was wonderful and really shows the ways in which he was thinking as a man of the theatre by this point. He said, no, 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 we don't want transcendence here. We don't want a lyrical love duet. Tosca is too busy worrying about what's going to happen to her lover to stand around, faffing around, <laughs> singing some big set piece. That isn't realistic. And it's an interesting moment, I think, actually in the history of opera generally, that at that point, the composer actually overrides his own job to write music, if you like. He doesn't want lyricism to override everything else. He wants it to be realistic. He wants it to be emotionally powerful. Can we perhaps read this opera politically? It's set in 1800. We may not know the exact date, but it's in the period in which Napoleon, Bonaparte is leading uh, the army of Italy across uh, in order to conquer Italy and bring, bringing perhaps the ideals of the French Revolution, however much they may have been changed by his own dictatorship, but he's bringing these. Um, uh, should we see the whole opera in terms of people trying, uh, aspiring to uh, the kind of liberation that Napoleon is bringing and indeed maybe reflecting upon the state of Italy at the time too? We could do that, as always the big sigh, the opera and politics question. Um, these are sort of, they're difficult issues to unpick. In a sense, the answer for this particular opera, I think, probably needs to be, in all honesty, I don't think Puccini was that interested in the politics of Napoleonic Italy. In all honesty, I think that's the case. That doesn't mean to say that there are not political aspects to the opera. Um, and it also doesn't mean to say that political readings of the opera are not valid. I mean, there has been a tendency in the past few decades to read this piece within the context of 20th century fascist politics, for instance. There are obvious resonances. It works very well, in fact, to sort of transpose it in that way. Um, the sort of the torture, the struggles uh, under a sort of restrictive, repressive regime. Um, those things are all there and ready for sort of contemporary contemporanization, if you like. Um, but in all honesty, yes, I don't think this, the music is not about 1800. The music is very much about 1900. 
The critic, as I've said, Joseph Kernan, famously described Tosca as a shabby little shocker. Is there any evidence that he ever took his opinion back and realised no. what a cruel judgment it was? No, I don't think so. I think he's stuck by it. Um, although, actually, I should say that my favourite line from that chapter, which is it's a very interesting read, but he actually he talks about um, the end of the opera, which... I hope this isn't entirely a spoiler, since you re refrained before. <laughs> but he writes, Tosca leaps, and the orchestra screams the first thing that comes into its head. And actually, I think that's a wonderful description of this opera. I mean, no, he wasn't a fan of Puccini. That was for all sorts of reasons. My suspicion is that he was listening to Puccini on Saturday nights in a, a kind of warm bath of <laughs> delicious sound. But as a professional, as a musicologist writing in the 1950s, it would have been career death for him to take Puccini seriously. It was difficult to to be a professional opera scholar then. Opera wasn't taken seriously. It was something you did socially rather than something you were a sort of an intellectual in relation to. And so I think that lies behind his particular snobbery. But the idea of the orchestra screaming in response to Tosca, I think that's a fascinating reading of this opera where actually the orchestra does sort of amplify our feelings about mm. what's going on. Flora Wilson, thank you very much, and stay with us, if you will. We're joined now, ladies and gentlemen, by Stephen Gadd, who covers the role of Scarpia in this production, and by Andrew Smith, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff, and they're going to perform music from the opera. Will you please welcome Stephen Gadd and Andrew Smith. Stephen, as I'm regular visitors to our pre-performance talks, no, you have to talk or rather sing before you get your supper. Oh, yeah. I see. <laughs> um, right. Let me talk a bit about Snow Scarpin first. Um, is he a complete monster? Can you find any redeeming feature in this man? I think you do an extreme injustice in announcing that he's evil right at the outset. Um, and going back to the question about political atmosphere, I think it's slightly misleading to refer to the... Uh, uh, wistfully to the lost Roman Republic. This was an occupation by a foreign power, um, one which was undoubtedly cruel. The Napoleonic forces would nail people to doors if they got in the way. Um, so Scarpia was brought in, it seems, to restore order after these, these two years of occupation. And I think you can only understand his actions through knowing that. Um, the cruelty that you see him um, imparting is to uh, somebody who's a known sympathiser with the regime that's been thrown, overthrown. Um, but, but his motives are not entirely, however much he may be there, to restore order to a troubled and difficult realm. His motives are pretty impure. What he wants is Tosca. I think that's a side issue. <laughs> well, um, continue. Well, no, you, you asked me if he had any redeeming features. This, this is Scarpia talking, it's not me, <laughs> understand? <laughs> um, he, it's arguable whether he actually forces himself on Tosca. There's a point um, in Act Two where he actually says, you're free to go. You know, I'm not going to stop you by force. Um, he, he says he prefers a violent conquest to a gentle surrender, but um, he doesn't actually follow that through in Act Two with, with violence against Tosca. Um, it's very much a, a rough wooing, um, and he, he obviously tries to blackmail her 
in order to get her, get her to surrender to him. But the violence is only meted out to those who have shown by their actions to be uh, against the papal states for whom Scarpia works. See, this is a very revealing portrait of Scarpia. <laughs> none of us have met before. Let I've me had just, to work hard. <laughs> let me just continue. <laughs> I mean, this is a man who summons Tosca, who, whether he wants to force himself on her or not, to his apartments, that's beside the point. But he then has her lover, Cavradossi, tortured in the room next door, and worse, the door is opened, mm -hmm. so she can hear the horror that's yeah, going so on. Yes, so he needs this information in order to catch Angelotti, who is consul of this evil empire that had occupied Rome for two years. Um, swiftly moving on. Mm. Um, but what are the vocal challenges of this role? Mm. Uh, age, I suppose. I tried singing this role mm, 10 years ago and um, it wasn't a happy experience. Um, I think as you go older, as a baritone, uh, you, uh, you forget a lot about technique. You, a lot of the technique that you learned at college just becomes second nature and you can concentrate a lot more on drama and putting a character across. So technically, you should have asked me 10 years ago what, what the challenges are. I don't know anymore. I just sing it. But it's pretty tough going. I mean, you've got a lot to do. Yeah, well, I, <clears throat> Puccini writes very well for voices. He, he does space things out. Uh, there are plenty of rests between the big, the big moments. So actually, um, no, it's not, it's not a big vocal challenge. How would you characterize the music that, that Puccini wraps around the character? Um, <sighs> relentless, I would say. It's, it's like a big juggernaut coming at you. Right from his first entrance, he's this massive force. Um, which is the, the papal state in his person. Um, and um, he, he can't, there is no way past him. Obviously, he gets derailed slightly at the end of Act Two. <laughs> <laughs> to, to put it mildly. It's, it's massive. All his music is solid yeah. and or graceful. There's, a, there's an elegance to it, too. What are you going to sing for us? And what is, and uh, this is the end of Act One. Um, he, Scarpia has got wind of something going on. Angelotti, the evil consul I told you about, has escaped <laughs> from Castel Sant'Angelo and uh, he, uh, Scarpia thinks he knows where he is and thinks that Tosca is going to lead him to him. Great, thank you. Agents, quick as you can now, hurry, follow wherever she leads you, don't lose her, be careful. Oh, Tosca, 
Andrew Smith, thank you both very much indeed. Um, and thank you for your revisionist account of this opera. We shall bear it in mind. <laughs> Flora, how would you describe Puccini's score? What's he actually doing musically here? Oh, goodness. He's doing a lot. Actually, I think if I might just follow immediately on what Stephen was saying while we've got the sound of Scarpia in our heads, I mean, I think the thing that to me seems like the challenge is making Scarpia human. It's making him lyrical. I'm looking for, <laughs> for a nod here. I mean, it seems to me that having him as a monster is too easy. It's much more complicated, much more persuasive opera. If you hear him and think, oh my goodness, yeah. Well, he is a sort of attractive proposition in a sense, but it's just a shame he's... <laughs> but don't you think the music's erotic? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
No, I mean, I think it's treading the line between the sort of the nastiness and the, the sort of real sort of sensuality of it. Um, sorry, to no, no, the, no. I, I mean, one begins to think just how how sexually charged sadism and masochism are, and in a way, in a way, you know, Puccini is, 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 spends his life punishing women in a particularly sadistic way through all of his operas. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was. In a sense, we're going down a rabbit hole here. Um, he was, in a sense, we of his time. Yes, we might retract at some point. Um, of his time, in the sense that um, there was nothing sexier than a dead woman for much of the 19th century. She had to die in the right way, but there was something undeniably sexy about that. And so that's sort of there in the background. In terms of what he's doing, I think what's really astonishing about Puccini in Tosca in particular, but also in general, is his use of the orchestra. He's making the orchestra into this astonishing sort of colour organ, if you like, um, that he's, he's able to play the orchestra. I mean, Mahler, um, you, you mentioned um, Joseph Kerman being snobby about this opera. Well, Mahler was also a snob about this opera, you'll be glad to know. Um, so he, he said Act One was papal pageantry with continual chiming of bells. Um, he then left during Act Three, when he saw it in 1903 in Vienna, um, sorry, in somewhere in Austria, and he said afterwards that it was a masterly piece of rubbish. Nowadays, any idiot can orchestrate to perfection. <laughs> and that's the, it's the backhanded compliment that I think is the important one there, that Mahler said that Puccini could orchestrate to perfection in this opera. And it is an astoundingly well put together piece. I mean, the, the piano there, um, it's a serious feat. You need about four, uh, four hands to be able to play that. And uh, it's amazing that you can play it with two. Um, but, you know, there's an organ in there. There are bells. There are bells, as Mahler said, throughout this piece as part of Puccini's sort of expansion of the orchestra into an urban, a modern urban environment. But he, but he also helps us musically because he gives each of his characters a very clear musical identity. You heard it all the way through that, too. I was those dark colours. Exactly. Scarpia in particular, I think it's probably the most characterised, the sort of most influentially musically characterised um, personage in this opera, right from the start. You hear those sort of that whole tone theme, um, those chords sort of seeping in all over the place. And I think Puccini's sort of real achievement in this opera is finding a way so again, it's back to his reaction to the plot in the first instance, to the play, that it doesn't need too much music. He's found a way of producing music that isn't self-consciously, here's a lyrical moment in an opera. He's creating a fabric that just keeps on going. It's storytelling constantly. It refers to itself. So people who want to look for sort of Wagnerian, there's big scare quotes there, treatment of motives in this opera, I'm afraid that's another rabbit hole. Um, it's not you're not going to find that. But what you find instead is this sort of weaving together of motives and um, a texture musically that can speak to itself and comment on what's going on. The other extraordinary question, but it's always asked, and I don't know what the answer is, why is it that this music, indeed virtually everything Puccini wrote, so deeply affect audiences in a way that is quite unlike anything else in the opera house? Yes, I mean, it is, it's the sort of, um, it is the big question and it's extremely difficult to answer. I mean, I think there are some answers. Um, they're rather pragmatic and don't sort of live up to the, the magical experience of watching one of these operas or indeed the feeling of being totally manipulated. If you object politically or ethically to any of what you're watching, you're nonetheless swept up in it. I think his use of octave scoring, <laughs> which is not an exciting answer, but I think that is very, very powerful. He actually knows when to thin out musical textures and to give 
give a sort of big melody a huge, huge amount of space, really sort of amplify it. Um, I think there's something in his use of harmony that sort of post-Wagner, post-Verdi, essentially, he's able to really sort of manipulate us with, with scrunching harmonies, if you like. Um, Is it also the placing of the arias and duets, that they come emotionally at moments when we want them and they deliver, which is not always the case. No, I think he really, like Verdi before him, in fact, he really was a man of the theatre. He had an astonishingly acute sense of sort of dramatic pacing and how you work on an audience. Um, and in fact, one of his librettists, Giacosa, who was always the troublemaker, um, did complain right at the beginning. He'd got to the end of versifying Act One and he wrote to Ricordi and said, this is never going to work. This is absolutely impossible. Act one, there are too many duets. Act two, there are too many duets. Act three, it's just one big duet. Um, and um, in a sense, Puccini knew how to deal with that. It isn't just a string of duets. You know, he, he's able to sort of, again, manipulate the sort of the orchestral fabric, the operatic fabric. He wasn't, by this point at the end of the 19th century, he wasn't so hung up on the sort of conventional forms that operas earlier in the 19th century had really had to adhere to. He was able to manipulate those and manipulate an audience with them. Flora Wilson, thank you very much. Stay with us. Um, we're joined now by our last guest, who is the technical director for English Opera and Opera. Will you please welcome Jeff Summerton? Uh, and you can see, I should have said this earlier, but I'm sure you've all worked this out for yourself, you can see images for the production we're going to see tonight on the screen there. Jeff, is this a, a difficult show to get on stage? Is this a show that requires as much effort as anything else? Um, it, is, it is difficult. I mean, what, um, it's a revival. Um, and what you never know with revivals is how it works with the other shows that you're working with. Um, so currently, this morning, we were doing a rehearsal of Pearlfishers. Um, we've also got Don Giovanni, of course. So um, it's, it's always difficult because when you're doing a revival, um, the environment can always change. Um, so you're always constantly looking at that and seeing how you can mount these shows. What exactly, I know this sounds a bit sort of, what exactly does the technical director do? Ah, good question. Yeah. Right, I even brought a list, look. Um, fairly um, wide-ranging. I mean, my job recently actually has taken on far more responsibility because I am the licensee for the building, so I look after the um, overall theatre management of London Coliseum. Um, but I suppose what you could say um, is that the physical delivery of everything that is on the stage is my responsibility. Um, however, that also expands to the front of house as well, areas. Um, you know, so not only the E&O season, I'm responsible also for the visiting company seasons um, and basically everything, you know, the operation that happens here at the Coliseum. And what was the journey that brought you here? Oh, slightly bizarre. Um, I, I mean, my training, I trained formally in fine art, so I, I didn't do theatre, but of course going from a fine art in the Churchill, uh, sorry, in, I was at Ravensbourne, uh, and went and worked in get-outs at the Churchill Theatre in Bromley which was a repertory theatre company at the time. And so, you know, you had a huge amount of experience where you were doing shows on a three-week basis. Um, and then working your way through, you know, theatre from that point, touring. Um, I've ended up, prior to coming here, I at one point was the uh, production director for the Tour de France. Um, you know, there are divine, odd jobs that you do because they all have sort of interrelating skills, which is creating events or shows. And so there is a lot of sort of translation between all the skills that you learn along the way. What, what are the key skills that you need to do this? 
Um, I think in this building, trying to remain calm in adversity. <laughs> um, I think it's obviously working with very large teams. I mean, this is a fantastic Edwardian building. Um, it's a beautiful, it is a proper theatre, but of course we're limited um, by its space and size. Therefore, we have very large teams, you know, manually working to change sets over, costumes, props, wardrobe, um, you know, transport. Um, and I think it's just obviously having a good understanding of the coordination of those and empathy with all of those. Um, don't, you know, let people do their jobs and give them sort of autonomy, but at the same time, you know, you have to have an understanding of what their roles are. You, you already said that you're the licensee for the building yes. and, and that you also look after everything that gets on stage. Which of the departments in a conventional sense come to you? I mean, who have you got to supervise and, and, and organise? So, I've got... Stage lighting flies, stage management, transport and stores, uh, sound and video, health and safety, uh, the maintenance and engineering departments, um, all of the front of house areas, apart from box office, um, commercial operations, which again is to do with um, our visiting companies that we book in, um, and of course, which are the capital projects, which is my responsibility. I mean, this evening, you will get the chance to go in our newly opened Laidlaw Bar for the first time ever, just downstairs, and that's a project we've just finished this afternoon. So. <laughs> little, a little, a little add to... We're still cleaning. <laughs> um, I wonder what the, 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 the particular challenges of, of this stage are. We know that it's one of the largest openings. We know at one stage it had the most sophisticated revolve. It may do now, still after the revival. But we also know other things about this stage. Tell us a bit about the craft elements that you look after that get shows on the stage. Well, I think here. this is the thing. I mean... Um, this theatre is is a true working theatre. I mean, it's, it is a repertory theatre. We always have three productions. Um, we have a large number of staff. Now, a lot of those staff do still use very, very traditional theatre skills. This isn't a theatre where you press a button and a pallet slides on stage and a set is there and the costumes, you know, are preset because every single department... Um, works in a building that was constrained and built, you know, in the Edwardian times that was for, um, you know, variety. It was never designed to be an opera house. We have a manual flying system, so, you know, um, scenery that is hauled up and down. There is still a manual, you know, there are still people up in the flies hauling ropes. You know, simple things, even the skills of knot tying which are, you know, gradually dying out in the industry. We still have people, you know, props making, um, costume making, wig making, all of these real sort of artisan skills. Um, we still have and we develop in this company. So it's a fantastic sort of um, a bed for um, learning and training. And to that we should add scene painting too. I mean, Scenic whole... painting, construction. I mean, everything that happens within this building um, is, you know, a continuous rolling process. Um, so it's fantastic. The, the sense you give is that of, of living history. My own experience that is talking to the man in charge of the flies. I mean, this is now the only theatre, isn't it, where all the flies are pulled by hand for every show. Well, not in the UK. No, I mean... In London, though. In, in London. I mean, of course, when you have a, a, a producer in the West End who's running a show for sort of a year and a half, um, perhaps they'll automate a show because ultimately it's cheaper. But, however, there is a certain thing, you know, we have such complexity of running three shows in any one point that we have to have these teams of people who actually understand what is going up in the grid. I mean, it's, it, it's not only for the subtlety of how you can actually um, perform and actually operate a show, because with manual fly systems, you know, there is a subtlety that does work. However, um, there is also a very huge and a very big health and safety um, issue that, you know, having people there overseeing this, you know, have to have skills doing that. What are the different challenges between a revival like tonight's 
and getting a new show like you did with Don Giovanni on the stage? Um, time. I mean, obviously, uh, we give more time. We, we don't give much time to any show. I mean, from Don Giovanni, from actually being built on a Sunday to opening is probably only two weeks, and that includes all the rehearsals, and you're wrapping other shows around it. Um, with Tosca, you're probably only talking about a maximum of just over a week. Um, and as I sort of touched upon before, there are so many changes in the building because you don't know how it's going to fit with other shows. You can do plans, you can do paper exercises, but until you actually get there and actually do the running of it, you know, and in the interval changes, that obviously, that is, that is a big challenge. Virtually all productions nowadays are co-productions. The cost of producing opera means that you have to have a partner, if not two partners. Does that pose problems? I mean, here you are creating a piece that's going to the Met or that comes from the Met, yeah. you know, or here you are working, you know, with Perm in Russia. I mean, are there difficulties in adapting productions to fit the stage? There are. I mean, the way we overcome this is we try and be the lead co-producer wherever we can. Um, we feel far more in control of that and what we're able to do. So when we're co-producing, for instance, with the Met, um, if the Met produce something, the physical size of their proscenium arch, the height, um, the way that they work is often difficult to translate um, unless you have a you know, very sympathetic design team who at the very earliest stages have designed this to actually be reduced. So um, we try and always um, produce first. So for instance, I mean, we're building at the moment actually today in Los Angeles, Aknaten. Um, now, you know, so that is going around the world and we have pushed that out. It's much easier for us to control that. Um, with Tosca, obviously, we led on. Um, some shows, I mean, Lulu, for instance, is a case in point that we have coming up very soon from Dutch National Opera. Um, physically, it's enormous. Um, and actually working out, one of the complexities is how to actually cut these down because this is a big steel physical set. Um, and so working out and working with them in advance at the construction stage and how we can reduce it is key part of the job. So, so, so the model of the stage is one that has already been arranged to fit the house before it opens wherever the opening house is? Yeah, you try to, but of course sometimes you, can, you can't plan everything and you always get surprises. And, and tell me also, when you lend a production out, when it goes out on the road, what kind of stage do they come back in? Uh, it depends which company. It really does. No names. And I'm but... mentioning no names <laughs> on any set. Um, some set, I mean, you're talking, because not only sets, you're talking about costumes, uh, you're talking about props, you're talking about, we don't let wigs out. So when we send a show out, we have a list of exclusions. Um, but primarily, those are sort of shoes, underwear, wigs. Um, you know, the rest of the stuff, everything else goes. But however, for instance, I mean, when Madame Butterfly was going out, now that's been around the world, and if you've seen it, it's um, very, very delicate hand-printed silks. Now, we sent that out to one co-producer who promptly washed them all. Oh. Um, and, you know, you just can't plan for this. So you come back, you know. Um, so we've had to actually, you know, redo those. Um, sets do get damaged. I mean, you're talking about heavy, heavy constructions that are difficult sometimes, get-ins at other theatres are very difficult, the way they work is very difficult. On the whole, though, everybody is pretty good. So part of your job is repairing things that come back uh, that have been manhandled, so It is, speak. I mean, but that's repairing the ones we've manhandled as well. It's not only them, it's us as well, because, again, you know, we get these out of stores. Um, Tosca has come out of our stores. Um, so before it came in, there was a lot of refurbishment work to do, you know, Nakota. There was painting work to be done, there was repair work. There were uh, refitting of costumes, because, of course, um, as cast change, they have to be done the same with the wigs, the same with the shoes. Every department has to um, do work in advance. We, we also, of course, forget that 
unlike many other opera houses, you don't have a great space backstage to no. store productions. Does that make additional problems that there are large trucks travelling motorways it, to and from stores? It makes a huge. I mean, as you are all sitting here, there is still trucks being loaded with bits of um, pearl fishers um, because we just can't fit it in the building. Um, so we have to have two trailers always out of the back just to take sort of overspill. Who decides which productions to keep? in the repertoire and which to let go or which have got too old and worked their time? Well, I think the thing is we have so many. I mean, this is um, obviously the, the artistic uh, and the producing team, we really look to do that. Um, but of course, it's very sometimes difficult to make those decisions because, you know, you can revive a show that perhaps isn't received very well the first time and the second time, of course, the reaction to it changes absolutely markedly. Um, so you do have to be very careful and, you know, it's tentative in which ones you do. And, you know, I mean, good job we didn't throw away Mikado, for instance. I mean, you know, it could have happened, but we didn't. Um, so it, 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 we've still got, I'm trying to think how many I've got in storage at the moment, but it's around about 42 sets and costumes, sets of costumes and props. Good God. And how much space does that occupy in storage? I feel too much. Yeah, I couldn't quite <laughs> figure, but it's, it's a large amount and we try and keep it as small as possible. Jeff, thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a few minutes in hand, as always at the end. If you'd like to ask questions of any of our guests, and maybe we can coax um, our baritone back, please put your hand up. There's a microphone on its way to you. Yes, thank you. Um, very quickly, you said it took, and I can't believe this, a week or two. Mm. Now, just can you define what you were describing when you said a week right, or Right, a week or two. So, obviously, this is when you physically get on stage. This is not the rehearsal. But, however, our rehearsals are very short. You know, we probably only have a, a three-week off-site rehearsal period. Um, uh, during that time, obviously, everybody else is preparing costumes, we accept, you know, everything else that goes on. But when you get on stage, it has to hit the stage. You will be building, perhaps, on a Sunday, and by the Tuesday, perhaps, you'll have your first stage and piano rehearsal, where all the elements have to be in place and you are working. Um, but, yeah, normally, compared with um, other theatre industries, this is incredibly fast. So, so to make the set? Well, to, to build. So it will come in. Obviously, it's constructing in advance, but, yeah, you're still constructing all of these. This, with a new show, of course, the first time when you hit the stage, it's often the first time you've ever seen it. Um, or the creative team have ever seen it in one piece as well. So during that period of time as well, you know, you have to make the changes and um, often, you know, which often happens. Jeff, it's a... I think you've had three questions. <laughs> Maybe someone else would like to ask one. Do we have another question? Yes, in the second row. Back to Puccini. Um, in many of his operas, he introduces a bit of fun, the sacristan, for example. Why? Oh, I suppose um, there's an obvious argument for some light relief. I mean, he was all about sort of plays of light and dark, um, as you must know. So, I mean, I think any sort of contrast of that kind that he could bring in, especially in an opera like this one, where there is, there's a real sort of darkness on the whole, and so to have something that just cuts slightly across that, um, I think, you know, he had a very good nose for that sort of thing. Thank you. Do we have another question? Anybody? Yes, over here. How much truth would you put to the story about the trampoline at the end, at the end of the <laughs> <laughs> We'd be careful not to spoil it for those. Has anybody never seen Tosca in the audience? 
Well, we mustn't. Oh, that's a really exciting. It's a very difficult question. So How pleased. exciting, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think we ought to leave that question. Do you mind? Because it would spoil, for those who've never seen this opera, what eventually I'll happens. tell you what I think afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you very much for that. I thank all of you for being, as always, a wonderfully attentive, thoughtful audience. But our thanks, of course, especially to Jeff Summerton, Stephen Gadd, and Dr Flora Wilson, and to Andrew Smith. Thank you all, our guests, very much indeed. <laughs>